Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Back with the next installment of our monthly podcast series with UBS Asset Management, House Call, Talking Equity Markets, with UBS Asset Management. Joining us this month for the conversation, glad to welcome back Jeremy Zirin, Senior Portfolio Manager of the Houseview Equity Portfolios and Head of the Private Client U.S. Equity Team. We're also joined by Dominique Shager, UBS Asset Management's Senior Equity Investment Specialist. So with that, Jeremy, Dom, thank you for spending some time with our clients, our listeners. Dom, I'll pass it over to you. Dan, thank you for the introduction, and thank you for having us on the show. This year has certainly flown by. We have lots to cover today, so I'll get started. Jeremy, after rising steadily through July, stocks have wobbled a bit over the last two months. Yet, it seems economic data continues to be fairly strong. Jobs are solid, unemployment remains low, and deflation has slowed down. So, what is troubling the markets? Yeah, good to be back on the air with you, speaking with you, uh, Dom. So, you know, for one thing, I think we need to remember that you know, markets don't go up in a straight line, right? Investors should realize that these types of you know, 5, 7, 10% corrections are fairly common in equity market cycles. And so after the S&P was up almost 20% through July, it's not overly worrisome in and of itself that stocks are you know, roughly 5% or so off their year-to-date highs. I would say from a fundamental perspective, you know, the fullback has been fairly warranted. I mean, let's recap that during the first half of the year, you know, stocks were supported by a few things, right? First, it was economic growth, which was surprising to the upside. You know, labor markets continued to produce healthy job growth, which was supporting consumer spending. You know, second, inflation meaningfully decelerated off, you know, its unsustainably high levels from 2022. Um, part of that was just driven by the mass and high, you know, commodity prices, which weren't exceedingly high like they were post the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year. Um, but we also saw, you know, improving global supply chains, slowing wage growth as workers came back into the market and uh, a broad, fairly steady deceleration in most inflation metrics. And then, you know, finally, one of the biggest market supports in the first six, seven months of the year was just a boost to some of those mega cap technology stocks from the excitement over uh, AI. And so, you know, it's been pretty well documented that the largest seven stocks in the S&P 500, the so-called Magnificent Seven, has been responsible for a, a very high percentage of market gains this year. And so, you know, what's changed over the past couple of months that has sort of dented uh, the positive momentum and curtailed some of the positive uh, uh, returns in markets and caused a little bit of a pullback well, I'd say one is that we've seen oil prices rise pretty significantly, you know, rising from, you know, the mid-60s to over $90 a barrel. And inflation data over the past month or so has looked a little stickier, especially on, you know, what's called, you know, the super core or the core CPI services inflation X shelter, which the Fed is very, very focused on. And last month, you know, that metric went up, you know, month over month, four-tenths of one percent. And that was the highest it has gone up in, in, in over six months. Uh, I mean, more recently, it's been interest rates, right? Interest rates have risen, which makes equity investors nervous for a couple of reasons. You know, one, it makes bonds more attractive, all things being equal. And two, you know, the higher rates go, the more they do pose a threat to you know, the economy via the interest rate sensitive segments like housing and autos, which are you know, typically financed purchases. 
And then I would just say finally that simply the valuation bar had been raised to surprise markets to the upside. Uh, you know, with the markets increasingly pricing in a soft landing scenario, with the valuations of markets rising, it just took, you know, even more good news, uh, or would have taken even more good news to, for, for stocks that continue to rise, uh, from, from those valuation levels. So all in all, you know, nothing earth shattering, just a few, you know, just, I guess, fewer positive surprises, a higher bar to clear, it's likely caused markets to take a bit of a pause over the last couple of months. Speaking of a pause, Earlier this month, the Fed decided to keep short-term interest rates steady at around five and a quarter to five and a half percent. Yet, after the meeting, long-term bond yields rose, and the 10-year Treasury bond yield is now close to four and a half, a cycle high. Jeremy, what do you think that is, and what are the implications for the equity market? Nice segue with that pause there. Um, so, <laughs> you know, this, look, this week, this one team, you know, met, and you know, the Fed had essentially already telegraphed that they were not going to raise rates this month. But the surprise to the market, which was hawkish, was in their so-called dot plot, or the summary of the 17 FOMC members' expectations on where rates will be over the next couple of years. And so what changed most meaningfully in the dot plot was the expected path of the Fed funds rate for 2024, for next year. Now, back in June, the last time they released the summary of economic projections, the dot plot, the median dot for uh, 2024 called for 100 basis points or 1% of rate cuts by the end of next year. And what we learned this week was now FOMC members only expect to cut rates by, you know, half of that or 50 basis points next year. And short-term interest rates, you know, what that means is short-term interest rates are expected to stay, you know, above 5% uh, through the end of next year. Of course, you know, these are only Fed projections today and they can change, you know, but the market narrative has shifted a bit from, I would say, you know, the Fed is winning the war on inflation uh, and will be able to normalize rates relatively soon to a new narrative of we may be in a higher for longer interest rate environment. And that's in part given because, uh, you know, because of the resiliency of economic growth, which is a good thing. But it's also because the Fed may need to, to do even more to fight inflation, which is not such a good thing for stocks. So all in all, you know, in terms of, you know, what is the implication for the equity markets, you know, a little bit less good news uh, in terms of the potential of at least the way the Fed is thinking about it today, of when they can begin to normalize interest rates uh, out of restrictive, you know, monetary policy into something that's, you know, more closer to a benign or neutral policy stance. So given the implication of this higher for longer interest rate period, what are your thoughts around the current market valuations? Yeah, if you look purely at market valuations, almost any way you slice it, equity valuations are high. They're above their long-term norms. I mean, that said, you know, the recent pullback has made them look a little bit less stretched. So let's put some numbers around that. And at a market level, the S&P 500 today trades at about 18 times expected forward 12-month earnings. That's down from earlier this year when the market traded almost at 20 times forward earnings. For context, you know, the, the average P.E. ratio of the S&P 500 on forward earnings over the past 20 years is about 15 times. So we're, we're still high. We're not quite uh, as extremely high, but we're still high. I would say... 
that's just in absolute terms. I mean, one of the more interesting valuation measures now isn't just the absolute valuation of stocks, but the relative attractiveness of stocks versus bonds. And so because bond yields now are at their highest level in over a decade, both nominal and real terms, the relative attractiveness of bonds compared to stocks has actually very rarely been higher. You know, you'd have to go back to the tech bubble in the late 90s and early 2000s to find a time when bonds looked this attractive relative to stocks you know, purely mathematically. And then, you know, maybe one last comment on valuation that I think is interesting is that, you know, when you look within the equity market, it's not the case that all stocks or even at most stocks are expensive. What's driving the high market valuations at an index level is the fact that the market has become very concentrated and that the largest stocks traded high valuations. And so, you know, specifically the, the Magnificent Seven, right? The, the seven stocks that have been driving market gains so far this year that are mostly in the technology or secular growth sectors. You know, they, those seven stocks alone now represent 27% of the S&P 500's market cap, and they trade at nearly 30 times earnings. So if you look at the rest of the market, or the S&P 493, if you will, you know, the PE of that cohort is 16 times earnings, or and that's fairly close to their long-term averages. So, you know, growth stocks, tech stocks look expensive. Um, it's concentrated in the mega cap names, and the rest of the market looks pretty much normal in terms of equity valuation. So, Jeremy, at the start of the year, you had expressed concern that the lagged effect of the 500-plus basis points of interest rates that we've seen so far would ultimately trigger an economic slowdown. How has your view on the markets changed from earlier in the year? And given the stronger-than-expected economic indicators, are you more optimistic? Yeah, I would say our, our view has changed a bit. I wouldn't call it a sea change in our outlook, in part because of the high valuations and what's already priced in. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, earlier this year, we had greater concern that we could see an economic downturn during calendar year 2023, and that markets weren't necessarily priced for that, and that the risk-reward of the market was generally unfavorable. I would say what's changed in our view is that the probability of a soft landing has increased over the past few months, and that's largely been driven by the strength and the resiliency of labor markets, which has supported consumer spending. You know, remember that two-thirds of U.S. GDP is driven by the consumer, consumer spending, and if Americans have jobs, they spend their wages. So, you know, watching to see how job growth sustains in the next few months will be will be very important. Um, we can't rule out the potential for you know, just a delay in our earlier thesis, right? That we could still see a recession in 2024. And in the near term, we wouldn't be surprised, you know, if markets struggle to gain a lot of positive momentum, considering you know the growing threats to the consumer spending environment, right? We do have higher oil prices, we have the, the uh, repayment of student loans, and we have the potential for a disruption from uh, a government shutdown. Um, I would say that the other positive development is that, you know, while the economy has been resilient earlier in the year, the, the slump in corporate profits now appears to be fading. And so, um, you know, at the time when the economy was resilient, surprisingly, you know, corporate earnings cycle was a little bit 
desynchronized from the broader economic cycle because large chunks of the S&P 500 were going through weak earnings, particularly in the tech sector. And so if you look at S&P earnings, they were negative for three quarters in a row from the fourth quarter of last year to the second quarter of this year on a year-on-year basis. Uh, but if you look at the rolling 12-month earnings estimate, they looked to have bottomed. And so it's unlikely that we're going to have an economic slump and a corporate profit slump simultaneously. And if we do see the economy weaken, that could be somewhat offset by some bottoming trends in corporate profits. Um, shouldn't suggest that corporate profits would be robust by any stretch in, in an economic downturn, but it does buffer the sort of the, 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 the worst case scenarios. And so net net, I think that you know, markets aren't out of the woods necessarily, but I think some of the more extreme downside scenarios are less likely given the economic momentum and the bottoming that we're seeing in, in several corporate profit indicators. So, Jeremy, given the complexities that you just described, where are you finding value or opportunities within the equity market right now? If for long-term investors, I'd identify a few places that look attractive to us. I would say, first, I still think the energy sector looks pretty interesting and, and, and favorable. I mean, the sector has lied the S&P by about 10 percentage points year to date, but we've seen stronger performance more recently given the rise in oil prices. And the global supply-demand balance for crude oil remains tight, which should keep oil prices elevated over the next few months. And most importantly, you know, oil and gas companies continue to be very disciplined in terms of production. And so they've focused more on returning free cash flow to shareholders and, importantly, not overproducing just because oil prices are high. And that's what essentially has gotten them into trouble in, in past cycles. And then, you know, if you look at the valuations for, for the energy stocks, they look quite compelling, both in an absolute basis as well as relative to, to the broader market. From a thematic perspective, I still like stocks that can benefit from, you know, the significant amount of money that will be allocated to infrastructure projects over the next few years. So whether it's from the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, or from the CHIPS Act, you know, there'll be a lot of federal and private sector dollars spent on improving the nation's technology, climate, and traditional infrastructure. Uh, and I think there are you know, companies within the industrials and material sectors that you know, can benefit from, from those trends. And then lastly, I do think there are attractive areas within technology, even though, you know, at, as, a, as a sector, I, I, I don't find the overall uh, valuations terribly appealing. But within the sector, I, you know, I, there, there is going to be you know, significant dollars spent on the, the build-out of artificial intelligence capabilities. And you know, there is clearly the potential for this to be you know, a game-changing force to enhance productivity over the next few years. And so while valuations are high uh, across, you know, at, at an aggregate level, you know, we're focusing more on the reasonably priced beneficiaries of the AI boom. Thank you, Jeremy. As always, we appreciate your insights. And that's a wrap from us. Thank you for having us on the show.
Well, thank you, Dom. Thank you, Jeremy, for spending some time with our listeners and clients today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for another episode of House Call, talking equity markets with UBS Asset Management. Again, this is a monthly podcast series, and we do encourage our clients listening in to reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you have any follow-up questions about the House View equity portfolios. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. 